did so many working-class voters in swing states go from voting for Obama to voting for Trump? We found a statistically solid connection between mass layoffs and the decline of the Democratic vote, especially in the blue wall states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and especially in the rural white areas of those states. In those areas, up to one-third of the working people had experienced a mass layoff. That's Les Leopold. We talk with him about his groundbreaking study of the political cost of mass layoffs. His book is Wall Street's War on Workers, How Mass Layoffs and Greed are destroying the working class, and what to do about it. Then we re-air a clip from our 2013 interview with Les Leopold about his book, How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour, Why Hedge Funds Get Away with Siphoning Off America's Wealth. And finally, we continue from last week's reading of some poems from Mosab Abu Toha's book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Les Leopold, welcome back to Writer's Voice. It's been a while. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be back. In this book, Wall Street's War on Workers, you actually begin the book with quotes from workers who were laid off from your alma mater, Oberlin College. Why did you begin the book there? These workers were the ones who inspired me to write this book. Uh, They were laid off. These were uh, food service workers and janitorial workers who were unionized. They were laid off by this supposedly progressive college in the middle of the pandemic. And a bunch of us alumni uh, who were working in the labor movement or around the labor movement got together and did what we could to try to uh, stop it. We were not successful, but we did raise money for the laid off workers to supplement the little severance that they got. But mostly their stories were about loss, hardship. Uh, We had interns who interviewed them and, uh, they were just so sad that they had been severed from the college, not just for financial reasons, but it's kind of like they lost their family. They cared so much about being there, uh, working with the students and so on. And so I started to ask the question, why were they laid off? Uh, The college, you know, talked about financial reasons and all that, but none of that really made sense. And when we stepped back and we looked at things, we kind of had an aha moment which was that mass layoffs have been a vital part of the economy, uh, the changes in the economy since the 1980s, even before. But especially they accelerated in the 1980s as uh, Wall Street got deregulated first by the Reagan administration, then by the Clinton administration. And since then, both parties have been competing to see who could please Wall Street the most. And that mindset of being able to turn workers into disposable items, obviously had been picked up by Oberlin's administration, and they thought about it the same way. Uh, We want to save a few dollars, or we don't want union interference or whatever. Let's just get rid of these workers, as if the pain and hardship was something that they didn't have to worry about. 
it turns out when we started to research it, some very good work has been done on how severe the trauma of a mass layoff is. It's ranked as number seven of all the bad things that could happen to you, slightly worse than impaired hearing and vision. The Department of Labor says uh, mass layoffs are really, really bad for people. And yet we do it in good times and in bad. Look, layoffs, mass layoffs have always been with us, but normally they were associated with a recession. When we started to do research for this book, we found that even in the early 1980s, corporate executives really didn't want to do mass layoffs. They felt it was a sign of their own failure, that they had done something wrong, that they had mismanaged the company. Yes, when the uh, recession happened, the auto industry laid off people, but then they would hire them back when the economy picked up again. But something fundamentally changed in the early 1980s. And, and, and we made two incredible, I think, discoveries in this book. The first was that mass layoffs are really a big deal, that uh, there's a mass layoff database that exists from 1996 to 2012 when it was stopped during the austerity stuff under the Obama administration. And in that mass layoff database, and that's defined as 50 or more people laid off at one time for more than a month, 20 million people have gone through a mass layoff. And if you just project the same rate going forward, we're talking about 30 million, you add in their families and people in the community who then lose their jobs as a result of economic loss in the area, you're talking more than half the working people in this country have experienced the problems of mass layoffs. And I, you know, I know personally, this is real. My working class father got laid off several times. We were lucky. My mom was a bookkeeper and she kept her job, but he felt awful when he was laid off. He felt, you know, like he was worthless. And fortunately it was during the 1960s and late fifties and then early 1960s, the economy picked up and he got, he was able to get his factory job uh, and stayed relatively stable until he retired. So he got lucky, but I could see and feel what it was like uh, to go through this. Anyway, so our first discovery was that it was a big deal, but connected to that discovery was it was such a big deal that explains what's been going on in politics long before Trump is, uh, came along, that it, it shows us that there is a connection. We found a statistically solid connection between mass layoffs and the decline of the Democratic vote, especially in the blue wall states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and especially in the rural white areas of those states. In those areas, up to one third of the working people had experienced the mass layoff. We asked some steel workers in a workshop we were doing, and some of them experienced two and three mass layoffs. And they took it out on the Democratic Party. They felt that the Democratic Party had let them down. And so we can show a direct correlation with the rise of mass layoffs and the decline of the Democratic vote in rural in, in all counties, or especially in rural counties of the blue wall states. And that explains why those states went from being shoe-ins for the Democratic Party to now being uh, up for grabs. To look at this in a more of a microcosm, we happened to stumble on one county in West Virginia that lost the most coal mining jobs of any county in the country. 
It's a small county called Mingo County. It's got about 25,000 people. And in 1996, it had 3,300 coal mining jobs. It gave Bill Clinton 69.7%, not just that county, but the whole state gave Bill Clinton 69.7% of its vote. So that, you know, a landslide for the Democrats. Well, between 1996 and 2020, Mingo County lost 3,000 of the 3,300 coal jobs. And on top of that, what happened was basically nothing was done under the Clinton administration, under the Bush administration, under the Obama administration. You're talking 24 years, 16 of which were Democratic years where there was a promise of we're going to help people out who've been left behind. We're going to do positive things for working people. Well, what actually happened in that county was capitalism came in and did its thing. And its thing was it turned Mingo County into the opioid pill mill of the entire Appalachian region. Two drugstores started competing to see who could put out the most prescriptions. They hired a, uh, they both connected with doctors who wrote out basically signed prescriptions, thousands of them. They were putting out a prescription per minute, one opioid prescription per minute. One of the drugstores ranked 22nd in the entire country. Now you're talking, you know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, Miami. No, this little drugstore in Mingo County was number 22 in the entire country. And the coal industry was decimated. And this is what was left behind. So nothing was done. And they took it out in the Democratic Party. So Clinton got 69.7% in 1996. This is Bill Clinton. By the time we get to Joe Biden, this is a shock. He got 13.9% of the vote. 50% of the people voted for Republicans. That, that's discovery number one. Just to interject there, but West Virginia was also a place where during the 2016 Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders won. So explain the politics where people have a, a choice to vote for a Democrat. They didn't vote for the centrist. They voted for Bernie. And Bernie was running in the Democratic primary as an independent. And he was somebody who was actually speaking to the needs of uh, these left behind uh, working people. And by the way, this county, the other amazing thing about this county, this was kind of the birthplace of the United Mine Workers of America. This is where Mother Jones uh, went to bat for the workers who were being slaughtered by Pinkertons, you know, uh, police guards during their organizing in the early uh, 1900s. This place was under military occupation from about 1920 to, to 1930s until the Roosevelt administration came in. And once the Roosevelt administration became friendly to unions, the United Mine Workers grew and prospered, and this became a loyal Democratic place. And I'm not surprised that it went for Bernie Sanders, who was a loyal trade unionist and was unabashed about supporting unions, not mealy-mouthed, not trying to play, not trying to placate Wall Street. So there was a lesson to be learned here that mass layoffs is a big deal, and the political party that speaks to mass layoffs is going to have a chance. If you don't speak to mass layoffs and and you've been in power for a long time, you're going to pay the price, especially if you've sold yourself as the friend of working people. But the Republican Party 
oligarchs. It's always been the party of billionaires. And now we have, uh, we could say Joe Biden has been supporting uh, labor unions now. He just got the UAW endorsement. He was the first president ever to walk a picket line. He got the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. All of these are promising a lot of good jobs. Unemployment is at record lows. So why haven't the workers, whether in Mingo County or elsewhere, come back to the Democratic Party? Why have they gone to the Republican Party, which is far worse? I can give you several clues. You use the word promise, the promise of good jobs. What about the job you're losing right now? The promise of a good job, I'll give you an example. The plant is shut down, Siemens plant in uh, the southern tier of New York State, just above the Pennsylvania border. 500 good paying union jo- unionized jobs were lost a couple of years ago. Well, now there's a new a battery plant being built up in Buffalo. Tell me what good that does to the 500 workers down there. They're not getting those jobs. They have to eat. They've already gotten jobs. So the promise of new jobs someplace else is not a promise. It's only a promise for somebody, but not for you. I think that's that's one thing. The second thing is the Democrats historically have been known for job creation. So during the New Deal, they rebuilt Appalachia, you know, TVA, Tennessee Valley, Valley Authority, the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Skyline Drive, a similar program could have been done now. We could have rebuilt all the, you know, the infrastructure of uh, West Virginia. My God, it needs a better schools, better uh, uh, health facilities, internet connections, not public-private partnerships, but, you know, real job creation of needed stuff that if you went community to community, they would have made a list of what their priorities are, and they would have been proud to do those jobs and would have, for, again, rewarded the Democratic Party uh, for it. Letting them become part of the pill mill, opiate pill mill manufacturing uh, sector does not exactly uh, endear you to the powers to be. The third hint or clue, I think, is probably the most important one. If no political party can actually rebuild your livelihoods, give you a relatively secure livelihood, then you turn to the bosses. Then it starts to make sense to you, deregulate manufacturing, give them more tax breaks, give them something so they can give us jobs. Because now what you've done, especially since trade unions have declined so dramatically during this Wall Street attack on workers, where only 6% of the private sector are in trade unions, what protection do you have? You don't have it from the Democratic Party. You don't have it from any trade unions because there aren't there aren't any around. So you turn to the bosses and hope that if you placate their needs, your employment will stay relatively secure, that they won't lose. And yeah, I'm going to push back to a little bit to that, because I think you point out in this this book, Wall Street's War on Workers, Les Leopold, that, you know, first of all, workers are a lot more progressive than we think. And we'll get into that in, in a minute. And there have been studies that have shown that even the notion of capitalism itself is losing its hold on workers. And, you know, as your book states, it's Wall Street's war on workers. I think workers probably understand that the bosses are not in their corner. You have to view this in a a very narrow frame, which is 
I have a job. I have to support my family or myself. And my job is precarious, as are all the jobs around me. I have a boss right now. I say it's an employer who employs 500 people in this rural county. I want that guy to stay here. So if the if the Democrats don't have anything to say about this, you know, for most of those years, left me behind, I start wanting to please that boss. I don't have any other power. The Democratic Party doesn't give me leverage. I don't have a union anymore to give me leverage. So I start looking at the boss as a way, yes, you know, I hate Wall Street. I don't necessarily like corporations or capitalism, but I have to eat. So I start trying to placate the boss. And let me give you one more example that you're not going to like. But the reason that Trump picked up more working class voters was for two reasons. For the first time, a Republican outflanked the Democrats on trade issues. He basically said, NAFTA sucks. Letting China into the World Trade Organization sucks. I'm going to put tariffs on imported steel. He made a play for the working people who were in precarious globalized industries. The Democrats refused to do that. They made a point of not doing that. In fact, Obama even tried to do another trade deal, the TPP, which the labor movement fought hard to defeat it. So Trump came out and basically was saying the same thing as, as these trade unions. So that was one thing that endeared him. The second thing was he's the first president since Harry Truman, really, who stopped the mass layoff. He went, the carrier air conditioning company was going to move, uh, a part of United Technologies was going to move to Mexico, and 1,100 jobs are going to be lost. When it all was said and done, it, it stayed in, in, you know, in Indianapolis, and only 800, jo 800 jobs were saved out of the 1,100. But that's only one place. I mean, you can't say in any other way that Trump stopped mass layoffs. I was around for this. I was writing and screaming atop my lungs to the trade union movement, gather up every laid off person you can with a sign, bring him to the White House that says, what about us? Force him to do more. But the point is the Democrats didn't pick up on that. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Tell anybody I'll vote for ham sandwich before I'll vote for uh, uh, Donald Trump. But Joe Biden had the clearest, easiest chance to stop a mass layoff, and he refused to do it. It was in, I think, 20, 2021, the Milan Pharmaceutical Plant in Morgantown, West Virginia, unionized jobs, steelworkers, average pay, 70000 a year, 1,500 of the best blue-collar jobs in West Virginia. And the workers were very innovative and organized, and they pled to Joe Manchin. They pled to Bernie Sanders. They pled to uh, Joe Biden. They said, use the Defense Production Act to keep this generic plant from moving to India. And they even had a terrific plan, I thought, was nationalize it and have it produce generic drugs for the VA and for Medicaid. You know, it's the middle of the pandemic and it's pharmaceutical. You could easily keep it open. The Biden administration uh, refused to get involved. Our revolution, Bernie Sanders's organization, supported this effort wrote a letter in behalf, a strong letter in behalf of these workers. Bernie Sanders, who was head of the budget committee, didn't do anything. So Democrats had a chance to intervene. And a similar thing happened with Siemens in uh, upstate New York. They had a chance to keep plants open by using their power. Siemens was, let me tell you that story, because it's, it's a little sad. 
Bernie Sanders did an incredible ad, a Facebook ad, about a speech he gave at a Siemens plant in Iowa during the 2019 Democratic primaries. Siemens was shutting down this plant that had been open for 100 years. They said, you can't shut this down. We're giving you $750 million in federal contracts, defense contracts. You can't be shutting plants down because you just want to save some money here and there. Now, my watch, this isn't going to happen. Beautiful, maybe two-minute ad. Anybody can find it on Facebook. Just go Siemens, Sanders, Facebook, and you'll find it. Well, uh, a couple of years later, when Bernie's, the Democrats are in control of the whole shebang, right? And, and Bernie's ahead of the budget committee. A plant, that plant, Siemens plant, 500 workers, unionized workers in upstate New York goes down or is threatening to go down. Chuck Schumer is in his area, is running around trying to find a new buyer for the plant. I think he might have found somebody eventually, but all the workers are totally gone. Bernie doesn't do anything. It's the same plant, the same company. Meanwhile, in Germany, the IG Metall Workers Union convinced the company to keep six plants open and put new production in it using their co-determination power where they have half the seats on the board of directors. So that Siemens was willing to do it in Germany, but here they shut, they shut down the facility. And to add insult to injury, this is the part that gets me. There's a signing ceremony at the White House for the infrastructure bill. There's 12 people in the picture. And in the front row is the president, woman, president of Siemens Energy. She's there for the signing ceremony of the infrastructure bill, puts out a press release of how wonderful this is going to be for jobs. And she just eliminated 1,700 jobs in the United States. This is the kind of stuff where the Biden administration and the Democrats could have taken a stand. It was low-hanging fruit. It would have been painless. But it might have upset, you know, the apple cart with Joe Manchin and corporations and uh, Wall Street, but the work, working class people would have loved them. I mean, can you imagine if somebody actually, you're halfway out the door and they stop it? That's what's so powerful about stopping mass layoffs. And it is in the power of using the bully pulpit to do that. And that's what we're, we're advocating in the book. Yeah, because I think I remember that time, you know, Joe Manchin was the kingmaker there. He was the crucial vote on, you know, the Infrastructure Act and all the other kinds of things. So I, I think the point is more like the bully pulpit, because really, I doubt that Biden or Schumer would really have had the opportunity to get something passed over Joe Manchin's uh, no. He didn't need Joe Manchin to do the Defense Production Act. But how could Joe Manchin be against saving 1,500 of the best blue-collar jobs in West Virginia. His daughter was long out of the company. She had already gotten her money. It would not have been an issue. If they sat down with him and said, Joe, we're going to save 1,500 blue-collar workers. It's not going to look good for you if we let this plant go down. We want to help you maintain your position and, and get reelected. So we're going to use the Defense Production Act and at least keep this place open for a couple of years. And stalling actually is a good tactic because workers get closer to the retirement age uh, some of them, and it's an easier transition in the future. If you, uh, they did that in, in Europe. They investigated the, in Germany, they investigated the shutdown of Siemens for so long that a whole bunch of workers were able to you know, make it to, uh, to retirement. So th it's not insignificant to actually work out a stall. But here's the problem. It undermines the prevailing notion of capitalism and its rights. It has the right to lay off people whenever it wants to. Right now, 
This is the mind-blowing part. What industry is booming? High tech, right? Amazon, Google, Facebook. In the last year, those companies, during their boom period, laid off a quarter of a million people. And, and, and these, you know, these are workers in the high-tech industry. They don't, they're not necessarily high-skilled workers themselves. Between January 1 of 2024 and the end of January, another 30,000. This is just what people do. They, corporations think that workers are just like toilet paper. You use it and you throw it away. It's a travesty. And nobody's calling them on it. Nobody is saying that mass layoffs are bad. On top of all of this, the reason there are these mass layoffs have nothing to do with production. It has everything to do with two Wall Street factors. One is stock buybacks. This is the story of Carrier. Carrier was part of United Technologies. 50 hedge funds from Wall Street took a position, i.e. they bought up a bunch of stock and got a lot of proxy votes in United Technologies and demanded a $5 billion stock buyback. So what United Technologies did was said, okay, well, how can we get enough money to satisfy this stock buyback? Because when you buy back the stock, the price goes up immediately. And then the Wall Street hedge funds cash out and they basically they get most of that $5 billion. And so do some of the uh, top CEOs who are paid with uh, United Technologies are paid with stock options. So they decided, oh, we're gonna move, let's move Carrier to Mexico because we're going to save $60 million a year, and that'll help pay for, help finance the stock buybacks. This happens in thousands of companies. The deregulation came in in 1982. Before 1982, stock buybacks were capped at 2% of corporate profits. Today, it's nearly 70% of corporate profits. 70 cents of every dollar of profit goes to stock buybacks. In some companies, it's over 100% because they then borrow money and use it for stock buybacks. That's number one. And number two tactic is leverage buyouts. A private equity company goes in, buys up a company, uses a little bit of their investment money and borrows the rest. That debt then gets placed on the company that is bought. And to service that debt, you've got to lay off people. We just saw this happen with Twitter. Musk buys up Twitter, borrows a huge amount of money. The, the debt service for Twitter went from $50 million a year to $2 billion. How to pay for that? They laid off basically half the staff at Twitter. Toys R Us, Bed Bath & Beyond, went under because of this uh, leverage buyout stuff and because of the stock buyout. It happens again and again. Matter of fact, we made a list of all a, a bunch of recent companies that did layoffs in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan's in the book, and every one of them had a stock buyback before the layoffs. So, Leslie Apold, in this book, Wall Street's War on Workers, there's a whole other really important topic that you cover, which is that you say that workers are not the you know racist deplorables that Hillary Clinton called them or Obama hinted that they may be and that so many people think they are. So tell us, what did you find about white working class voters? The reason we had to go there was that somebody could come back at us about mass layoffs and say, no, it's not mass layoffs that's turning people to the right. It's the fact that they've become increasingly 
deplorable that you know they they're becoming more and more racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera. So we had to look at that, and we had no idea what we would find. So, uh, so and when uh, you say we, you're not just talking about you. The Labor Institute. I have a team. I'm lucky. Uh, this research required several of us to gather the data, analyze it. It turns out it's a big deal. It's not just a little sit home with a pen and pencil. You have to really work on it. We found 23 questions in uh, these three big voter surveys that cover decades of voters. The databases are like 50,000 people or more who answer uh, these questions. So they're not, you know, it's, it's not a thin database. It's, it's way larger than the polls that you see, you know, before, during elections. Far more telling, and I think trust, more trustworthy. And these questions were things like, do you think that uh, homosexuality is always wrong? Do you think that gay and lesbian couples should be allowed to adopt children? Do you think that illegal aliens should ever be, you know, have a path to citizenship? You know, th there was just a string of these uh, questions. And there were also questions that were more moderate even than that. They weren't pushing kind of that extreme thing. And even them, you found that workers are more progressive. Right. Well, the ones that really shocked me, first of all, we found that on the 23 questions, none of them had gotten worse. That was finding number one. So the idea that somehow they got more deplorable, no. Should gay and lesbians be allowed to adopt uh, children? Well, couple of decades ago, the answer was 33% or so, 35% of the white working class agreed. Now it's over 70%. Another one that completely shocked me, you know, our institute, Labor Institute, works with a lot of Hispanic immigrant worker centers. We do occupational safety and health with them in Spanish. So we, this question was important to us. It goes something like this. It says, should illegal, uses the word illegal immigrants, be able to become citizens if they've been in this country working for three years, paid their taxes, and have not committed a felony. That jumped from about 30% to 65% of the white working class, of the white working class in support of that idea. That really blew me away. Unfortunately, none of these surveys have almost any questions about job security. So you have to kind of read in between the lines. But we looked at the white working class people who were Republicans or leaned to Republicans or were independents who were leaning to Republicans. We looked at that group of people and that group of people really were upset. Mostly they were not particularly uh, they progressed in a liberal direction as well on social issues, but they were very upset about job loss due to trade. They were also upset about guns and immigration. Guns was one, was one that didn't get better, but it was still over 50%, for example, in support of prohibiting assault rifles. So uh, it went like from 58 to 55%, but it was, you know, roughly the same. So that can't be an explanation for the drift away from the Democratic Party. What about immigration, though? And race. Immigration and race. The difference between white working class and white managers on race is minuscule. And a matter of fact, the difference is on some of the racial issues between like picking yourself up by your bootstraps, the difference between white working class and black working class isn't all that, all that great either. And when it comes to immigration issues, white working class and black working class are different than Hispanic working class. 
uh, Hispanic working class are, you know, would be uh, much more supportive. It's the wrong lens. The data tells me that you're barking up the wrong tree. If you if you start talking about understanding the white working class in terms of race issues and opposed to class issues, you're missing what's going on. And this isn't just in this country. And it isn't just us, our research team. Mike Lux, one of the biggest pollsters for the Democratic Party, has done a, a great report called Factory Towns. I encourage everyone to take a look at it. His conclusion is, from a bunch of focus groups, is that he says the white working class wouldn't care all that much about the woke stuff, he says, if the Democratic Party gave more of a damn about the economy. The studies in Europe show that all this talk about populism and the working class turning against immigrants, et cetera, he said, they show that time and time again, that what concerns them is job loss, job insecurity. And it makes sense. You know, what good is your life if you can't have a livelihood or if you're you're forced into dependence on small welfare checks? You don't feel good about yourself. You know, we found in some, like I said, uh, Pennsylvania as a whole, about a quarter of the uh, uh, workers experienced the mass layoff. Some of the counties, well over 30 percent. You start to lose your faith in democracy if somehow, no matter what, no matter who gets in, it's not going to be just Democrat to Republicans. Go, go Democrat to Republican to nothing. You start losing your faith that a democracy works when it seems to work only in behalf of the wealthy, only in behalf of, of uh, Wall Street. And you don't have a you don't have a job. Even your job in the dollar store starts to you know disappears on you. You have nothing that approaches uh, a modicum of stability and a modicum of economic stability. Not just the economy as a whole, not just new jobs for somebody else in the future, but my job right now needs to be stabilized. I have done nothing wrong to lose my job. It's a different story about an individual layoff here and there. That happens all the time. We're talking about mass layoffs where a company steals the money, basically. The Wall Street is just stealing the money. Legalized looting is what William Lozanic, Professor William Lozanic calls it, legalized looting. And you've even written a book about that, the looting. Uh, uh, what was that, the, the title? The looting of America. But I didn't know Lozanic. Lozanic taught me about stock buybacks. This book is an update of that one in a very big way, much more, I think, much more telling about where we are now. And where we are is not a good place. I was much more optimistic during the first Sanders campaign. It looked like we had corporate giants and Wall Street on the run. And unfortunately, we are in a tough place now. Oh, by the way, just to give you one more, one more example of the white working class. The January 6th insurrection. The normal way that's looked at is, oh, there's populism run wild. The masses, these uneducated, violent people are threatening democracy. Well, the University of Chicago has a project that studies events like that. And they got demographic information from over 700 of the people who had been arrested. And they found that the group was about 70% or 75% of the group was white collar and business owners. 25% was blue collar. Both of those are over disproportionately lower for the blue collar workers than the population is large and larger for the white collar workers. And when you look at Trump's base, uh, the data shows a similar uh, situation. And if we open our eyes wide enough, look at what MAGA is really about. 
It's a absolutely boatload of lawyers, of, of businessmen, of real estate agents, of small time, you know, the Chamber of Commerce of these small communities all over the country. That's the heart and soul of MAGA. How many blue collar trade union people do you see leading Trump's efforts? You, you can't find them because they're not there. What's there is the traditional core, not the rich, super rich Republicans, but this new wave of angry Republicans. And that's what we should should be looking. They're the threat to democracy. But they're going to have support, tacit support from the white working class, working class in general. Uh, Matter of fact, some of the stuff we're hearing now about black black working people dropping away from Biden saying they're not going to vote. We're going to have people disinvesting in democracy because it's not delivering for them. And it's not asking for the moon. It's just asking for some stability. Stand up to Wall Street. So given the fact that Congress is unable to act, it's the Congress of no, it's the the do-nothing Congress, given the fact that the Supreme Court seems to check every progressive thing that Biden does try to do, like forgiving student debt, what could be done between now and the election? What could the Democrats do between now and the election to turn this situation around? I think it's simple. I think if they stand up and say, we are going to fight mass layoffs, it's wrong what's going on, using workers as disposable items. We're going to stand up against mass layoffs. Every mass layoff, we're going to be there and make noise about it, number one. Number two, stock buybacks have to be outlawed back to where they were in 1982. It's going to go down to 2%. We're going to fight for that. Number three, leverage buyouts are going to be capped. No more than $1 million in debt can be put on the company. The rest has got to be your money if you're going to buy the company. Or the debt, you take on the debt on your own hedge fund. You don't put the debt on the company. Believe me, everybody that's been through a mass layoff that had to do with uh, uh, leverage buyout knows exactly what that means. The stock buybacks is going to be new for people because because that goes on in a quiet level. But a lot of people know that. And they sure know what a mass layoff is. When Democrats start showing up at every mass layoff the way, you know, the way uh, Sherrod Brown is doing it, he, you know, he's been good on this. And look, he's been able to hang in there. Let's hope he still does. He's one of the people that actually gets this. Bernie gets this, although, you know, he fell, I think, fell asleep at the switch when he could have gotten involved in a, in a couple. But he he could be there. The Democrats decide to fight mass layoffs wherever they happen, whomever they happen for, they would become heroes. If they just got up and said it, we don't we are going to fight Wall Street on these plan closings. Wall Street's taking your job. We're going to fight them. They have to decide. And this is the key. They have to decide which side they're on. Are they on the side of Wall Street? Are they, do they care about Wall Street's cash? Do they care about getting jobs in the future when they leave Congress in high finance? Or are they going to fight for working people? If they make that decision clear and just say, get it, you know, go ahead, Wall Street, go support the Republicans. We don't care. If you want to help us save jobs, then uh, we'll work with you. But those jobs have to be protected and saved. You can't just be throwing people out on the street whenever the hell you want to. That would work. The reason this book was written now was to try to inject mass layoffs into the political discussion. I mean, what what chance do I have? I'm small potatoes, but I'm hoping it will catch on. That mass layoff is the issue that could save the Democratic uh, Party, I think. I know a lot of people are going to come back at you and say, hey, we live in a time of AI. Jobs are going to be lost all over the place. They already are. 
I mean, what about automation and AI as the cause of mass layoffs? Well, it's funny. Uh, uh, my publisher, after I submitted a, a manuscript, asked this very same question. So I wrote another chapter on AI. And I found some very, very interesting things. You know, uh, several commentators have been always, they always talk about trucking. You know, how the driverless truck is going to just unemploy all these truckers. Well, there is no way in hell that that is going to happen because trucking is growing, uh, is scheduled to grow by 10%. And most of the trucking and truckers in the country do local deliveries. So you would have, you know, you'd have to have AI that could not only deliver uh, the goods, but then actually take it off the truck, bring it into the house, connect the refrigerator, the washing machine, et cetera. You know, it's really, really far-fetched. And in fact, all the studies done by government agencies and private agent, uh, private research firms have found that automation is a slow process. Mass layoffs is a fast process. Stock buybacks and leverage buy, uh, buyouts are by far a much more severe impact in a shorter period of time. So in the last year, as AI has been burgeoning, my guess is that very few of that quarter million high-tech jobs that have gone down have anything to do with AI, that they were completely done for, for different reasons. Uh, I even asked AI whether AI was a big job destroyer or not. So that's, I, I'll leave it to the, uh, to the reader to find that. I thought that was their answer is cute. But then they might be lying. AI might be lying to us in order to protect itself, right, if it's really super intelligent. But that's just not the place to look. Globalization technology, look, step back for a second. Why are mass layoffs condoned by the Democratic Party? If you look at what they say, they'll say something like, well, globalization and uh, new technology are racing the blue-collar jobs, and now the market is for higher-skilled higher educated people. And that's where the future is. Now tell that to the quarter of a million people that just lost their job in high tech. They don't explain that. But what it basically does is exonerates them from any responsibility. It makes it fatalistic. It has nothing to do with the rule change in 1982 uh, that made uh, stock buybacks a mass phenomena in corporate America. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with these unstoppable forces that are like gravity. You can't do anything about it. And throwing your hands up and saying you can't do anything, that's the recipe for, one, letting mass layoffs run wild, and two, for losing the working class. Because you're basically saying, I can't help you, there's nothing to be done. It's BS. The trade laws that were put into effect with the full support of corporate America and Wall Street are written by humans, not by machines. And technology can always be a two-way street. We found these incredible hearings in Congress in the mid-1950s. One of the biggest uh, periods of automation was World War II. Tremendous labor shortage, of course, because 17 million you know, uh, troops around the world. And uh, automation came in rapidly. And there were discussions in the mid-1950s about what do you do about automation? And what they were talking about was, look, we used to have a 60-hour work week, and then it went down to, you know, 50, 48, and 40. We could be talking about a 35-hour work week, 34-hour, 32-hour work week. In other words, we could use automation for good or for ill. And that was what the hearing was about. 
You don't hear anything about this. We should be jumping up and down saying AI can eliminate crummy jobs. Terrific. Let's reduce the work week. If we can control mass layoffs, then AI could actually re reduce the work week from 40 to 36 or 40 to 32. Instead, we've given up challenging corporate cap, the new version of you know, financialized uh, capitalism. We've just accepted technology, globalization, Wall Street, just the way it is, can't do anything about it. You know, goodbye. For Democrats, that's mass suicide. Start worrying about where the real job loss is, stock buybacks, leverage buyouts, Wall Street out of control, Wall Street basically buying both political parties. That's where we need to concentrate. And by the way, we were right there in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash in 2008-09. Occupy Wall Street and the Sanders campaign. These The corporate execs were begging for federal money. They were, you know, Wall Street was going under. We bailed them out. Not one of them had to go to jail. And now look, we let them off the hook. Someone's got to fight for economic stability for working class people, not just jobs in the future. Now, my current job, I want some protection from the whims of Wall Street. Well, Les Leopold, the book is Wall Street's War on Workers, How Mass Layoffs and Greed Are Destroying the Working Class and What to Do About It. It's such an important message, and it's a very readable book as well. So I strongly, highly recommend this book to my listeners and to anybody else who cares about democracy in this country. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Les Leopold talking about his latest book, Wall Street's War on Workers. After the break, more with Les Leopold, this time from our archives. Oh, come on, all you workers who toil night and day by hand and by brain to earn your pay who for centuries old past for no more than your bread have bled for your countries and counted your dead. We're the first ones to starve. We're the first ones to die. The first ones in line for that high in the sky and we're always the last when the cream is shed out for the worker is working when the fat cats about in the factories and mills in the shipyards and mines we've often been told to keep up with the times for our skills are not needed they streamline the job, Westline rule and stopwatch our pride they have robbed. We're the first ones to starve, we're the first ones to die, the first ones in line for that pie in the sky. And we're always the last when the cream is shed out, for the worker is working when the fat cats about. That was The Longest Johns performing for the Worker Song Community Project. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews. You'll also find a link to Les Leopold's newsletter, Wall Street's War on Workers. Back in 2013, we spoke with Les Leopold about his book, How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour, 
why hedge funds get away with siphoning off America's wealth. Here's a clip from that conversation. How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour. What an attractive title. Tell us a little bit about why you pitched this title the way it was. Well, I was very concerned about our normal dialogue about inequality. It goes something like this. We say, okay, there are lots of rich people and there's poor people and it's too bad they're poor people and we should probably tax the rich to help the poor. That's sort of the liberal version of the argument. And the assumption is that how these super wealthy people make their money is A, legitimate, B, worthwhile to the U.S. economy, that they are the, you know, the makers. And uh, we never dig in to what they really do. So um, I had come across some astounding incomes that these people make in finance. And I wanted to ask the question of whether or not what they do produces value in connection with all that money uh, that they make. For example, it is assumed that in our economy, if you get paid a lot, it must mean you're making a heck of a contribution. Okay, so if you're Lady Gaga, it means a lot of people like your music and you make a lot of money because they like your music and, you, and products get sold around you, etc. So I wanted to see what the phenomena was for people that make 100 times what Lady Gaga makes or 100 times what Bruce Springsteen makes. Let's go right to some of these numbers. What does 100 times Lady Gaga, what Lady Gaga makes mean? The top hedge fund earner earned $2.4 million an hour in 2010. That's after the financial crush hit. That was the equivalent of what an average family makes in 47 years. I knew there's something had to be wrong with that. It's not possible for one person to produce that much value in exchange for the, that amount of money. There had to be something else going on. So let's say the top 10 musicians in this country, their average income is about $24,000 an hour, which is a lot. We can understand what they do. But here's, some, here's somebody making 100 times that. And uh, we have no idea what they do. So this book is about figuring out what do they do? Uh, does it produce any real value for our economy? And if it doesn't, then we have to delegitimize them because that group of people, they set the bar for inequality in this country. If some 40-year-old hedge fund trader is making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you can bet that every CEO in the country wants to make a lot more money too. So the bar is set by these uh, high-flying financiers. So we better understand what they're doing. Or we have no hope, I think, of dealing with inequality. You use the rubric of a guide to the rest of us to get to that 1%. But before we kind of dive into the meat of this, I think a lot of people think that they, they have a shot at it. But you disagree with that. You don't think most of us really have a shot at becoming a hedge fund manager who can make a million bucks an hour. Well, first of all, we're talking about the 100th of the top 1%. We're talking about the people who have the highest incomes uh, in the United States. And uh, you have a shot of winning the lottery. You have a shot at this as well. But what might hold you back is your ethics, which is you don't get to the top without cutting a few corners, ethical corners. For example, as well, uh, the uh, district attorney from New York raised the question of whether hedge funds, in fact, had a fundamentally corrupt 
business model. He had found so much outright law-breaking among hedge funds that he, he questioned whether or not the whole thing was based on a corrupt business model. I don't know if that's the case, but I think, as the book, I think, shows pretty clearly, most of what they do that makes a huge amount of money, the rest of us would call cheating. So there's a question, there's a big question about whether or not they produce anything positive for the economy. Okay, so first of all, I think all of us have a vague idea of what a hedge fund is, but what is a hedge fund? A hedge fund is basically a investment fund for the super rich. You have to have a minimum income of $200,000 to participate in a hedge fund, and you have to have a net worth of a million dollars. Institutions, large institutions also use hedge funds to invest. And and, And the key message of a hedge fund is they are saying, that we will get you a higher return than you can get in any kind of standard investment like a mutual fund or uh, in the stock market. And that extra return they call alpha. So alpha is what they get minus what uh, you could get by just investing in the regular old stock market. And this itself is a kind of interesting concept because basically wealthy people believe that because they're wealthy – they're entitled to make a higher rate of return than everybody else by just giving their money to somebody else. So I give my, I'm super rich. I give my money to a hedge fund manager. I expect to get double-digit returns. Even now, while most people are getting virtually nothing, they're expecting huge returns. By the way, that's the secret of Bernie Madoff. The reason people didn't question Bernie Madoff is he gave them that 12% return year in, year out, 1% a month, and the people who gave him uh, money felt they were entitled to that return, that that's the privilege of being rich. So um, we took a look at what people, how they create these alpha returns. How is it possible for someone to make a huge return by managing money? How, how do they do that? So the book is broken into uh, kind of a step-by-step guide of the, of the various ways that, uh, that you can go about making your million dollars an hour. Les Leopold talking with Writer's Voice in 2013 about his book, How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour. To hear the full interview, go to writersvoice.net. Time permitting, until a permanent ceasefire in Gaza is signed, we will read poems from the poetry volume Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear by Palestinian poet Mosab Abu Toha. The poems paint a vivid picture of what it was like to live in Gaza even before the current Israeli destruction of that Palestinian land. The first poem is What is Home? What is home? It is the shade of trees on my way to school before they were uprooted. It is my grandparents' black-and-white wedding photo before the walls crumbled. It is my uncle's prayer rug where dozens of ants slept on wintry nights before it was looted and put in a museum. It is the oven my mother used to bake bread and roast chicken before a bomb reduced our house to ashes. It is the cafe where I watched football matches and played. My child stops me. Can a four-letter word hold all of these? 
The next poem is Sobbing Without Sound. I wish I could wake up and find the electricity on all day long. I wish I could hear the birds sing again, no shooting and no buzzing drones. I wish my desk would call me to hold my pen and write again, or at least plow through a novel, revisit a poem, or read a play. All around me are nothing but silent walls and people sobbing without sound. And finally, the last poem is Tears. Tears trickle down my silent cheeks. I feel embarrassed. I don't want to bother them or any part of my body. Everything around me wants to stand silent, unmoved by the air or by my breath. Everything wants to stop for this moment. Even our olive tree bends when it sees the bomb fall. The tree's curly hair touches the dry sand. Its many green eyes are pierced by shattered glass. The windows of our living room, kitchen and bedrooms, and my father's library, where a couple of sparrows nest in a corner in the ceiling. The dust from our destroyed house is still falling slowly onto our neighbor's trees and rooftops, while the rubble and metal bars, those are heavy. They have already fallen quickly to pound the rough, scorched earth. Now the sky sheds tears on us all, and the dust settles onto the deformed stones, its makeshift grave, until the wind blows it on to a safer space, maybe into a van of VIPs crossing the border out and forever. That was the poem Tears from Mosab Abu Toha's book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. The Palestinian poet was kidnapped by the Israeli Defense Forces in October until worldwide outrage resulted in his release. He lives now with his family in Cairo, Egypt. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Music